0: Oh, please, Gavin, an English cult leader's name would be something like Reginald Smithwick Percy Covington Danforth Third or something. Yes. The following podcast contains... But swearing and using dirty words is not one of my vices. I don't use foul language, and I don't like to hear anyone else use it either. Explicit Language Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you decided your messiah was a guy named Vernon, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave Bledsoe this is episode number 398, your own personal Vernon edition of the show where we talk about Vernon Wayne Howe. You might know him better by David Koresh. Stay tuned. The... What the Hell are You Thinking Podcast is brought to you by re- returning sponsor, Secondhand Messiah, for all your messianic needs. Are you a prophet on a budget or suddenly experiencing an epiphany and looking to get your cult off the ground? Then check out Secondhand Messiah. We've got robes, print-to-order sandwich boards, flashy suits and shoes, or if you're looking to go upscale, lightly used luxury vehicles of all makes and models. Secondhand Messiah offers a selection of gently used temples, churches, mosques, and other houses of worship, all waiting to be filled with believers. Already have a congregation or looking somewhere to wait out the end times? Ask about our Texas value compound. A cleared lot ready to build. No credit, no worries. Secondhand Messiah knows all you really need to get your religion going is just a little faith.
1: And everyone was so upset with that guy because he called himself Jesus, right? And I said, come on, you know, the guy's real name is Vernon. (laughs) Let him be Jesus for a couple of months, you know what I mean? What's it to you? Who's going to follow a messiah named Vernon, anyway? <laughs> you got to be Jesus. That's part of the messiah deal. And Vernon Spake.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: what are we doing? I'm following Vernon.
2: Where are y'all
1: going? To the drive-in. <laughs> Joe Bob Briggs said the movie was real good. Vernon's going. He's my messiah. He said he'd get us some beef jerky. I follow Vernon, but I was in Australia and the Australians had a big contingency at the Branch Davidian compound and I'm from Texas so they were very curious, they were asking me all about it, you know. Oh this guy's so weird, isn't he this guy, Koresh is so weird. And I was thinking, well, wait a minute, frustrated rock musician with a messianic complex, armed at the teeth and trying to fuck everything that moves. <laughs> I don't know how to tell you this. Sounds like every one of my friends in Austin. I don't know if this is going to be an isolated incident. Waiting for Will Sexton to build a compound somewhere.
0: I was once recruited to join a cult. Oh, here we go again. I mean, I assume it was a cult. They certainly looked like a cult. Everyone dressed all in white and dancing through the streets at 2 a.m. I guess they could have been a modern dance troupe, but they had a van. So I'm going to say they were a cult. You see, my friend and I had closed down the bars when we were stumbling back to campus when we were suddenly surrounded by these white-clad weirdos prancing and merry-making in the streets. It was college. That's what I thought at first. I mean, I'd seen plenty of silly as shit over the past couple of years, but these folks were really taking it up a notch. They approached the two of us and told us they were having a party, and we really should go back with them to their party. This was before Troop Crime Podcast, so we didn't know about, uh... go with a hippie to a second location. But even without that knowledge, I was dubious. My friend, however, being younger than I was and much drunker, was quite enamored of the idea and proceeded to drag me down the street with this crowd of freaks toward, I swear to God, a white fucking panel van. Now, I was a child of the 80s, so I was fully versed in the idea of stranger danger, and there was no way in fucking hell I was getting in that van with these clowns. So I insisted that we were not going to do it. I was forced to put my foot down. You know how intimidating that is? Yeah, it didn't seem very intimidating because these nutjobs called me some very demeaning names and literally surrounded us and started shuffling us towards the van. My friend was actually going to get in that van. Oh, she would later swear that that was never going to happen. I knew her. I know her now. She'd get in that van today. Finally, I literally had to pick her up, put her over my shoulder, and pull my way out of this crowd of cultists. Very manly. To this day, I got no fucking idea what that was all about. I mean, I'm, I'm highly doubtful they were interested in me joining their little religion. I suspect they were far more interested in my friend. A more paranoid person would think that they probably would have strangled me and left me in a ditch outside Baltimore shortly after we got in the van. And I've never been able to find any information about a cult that dresses all in white and dances on the street in the middle of the night and abducts college students after last call. You made the whole thing up to just... (laughs) No, no, it really happened. It's just that when I look back on it, it's entirely possible that they were there not to... Induct us into a cult, but to take one or both of us, by force if necessary, off to a rehab. The reason I brought that up is we're talking about a cult this week. 30 years ago, the week this episode drops, was the beginning of the siege of the Branch Davidian compound in Waco, Texas. Uh, I think we all know how that turned out. The story of the siege itself is not pretty, and it's not something that lends itself to jokes. So we're covering it next week. But the events leading up to the siege were in fact very funny, something most people don't know a lot about. So I figured I could milk it into for content. So, uh, you know, open up your show Bibles, turn to 1993 and let's learn about Waco. <laughs> Before we begin with the Branch Davidians, we need to talk about the bigger picture in the good old U.S. of America. See, for years, the white, right-wing patriot movement was growing in America, particularly in the kind of places you very much associate with these kind of dipshits that dress in camo and spout slogans about how true patriots want to overthrow the government today.
1: it sounds familiar.
0: When Bill Clinton took office and appointed Janet Reno, the Attorney General, she inherited several long-running cases looking into the actions of these goobers. Reno gave the go-ahead for these investigations to continue and expand. This led to what happened at Ruby Ridge and eventually what happened at Waco. What you need to take away from all this is the government was not willy-nilly deciding suddenly to go after groups like the Branch Davidians. They were responding to a documented and dangerous rise in right-wing extremism. They just were doing it very badly. Which, of course, brings me to the General Association of Branch Davidians Seventh-day Adventists. The Branch Davidians. The Branch Davidians were, as their name implies, a sect of the Seventh day Adventist Church. Which, if the Seventh dayers aren't weird enough for you, I don't know what else to tell you. They split off from the main church in 1955 when a dude by the name of Benjamin Roden, born into a Jewish family, he caught Jesus' fever in a big way and rode the gospel circuit around the Midwest, and finally in 1955, split off from the general association of Davidian Seventh-day Adventists and became Branch Davidians. This is all so confusing. Only to a rational, sane person. All you really need to know is that Roden had a divine revelation. ...and revealed him the new name of Jesus. His real name's Murray Mathis. Roden bought himself some land outside of Waco... ...and proceeded to build himself a compound... ...that he called the New Mount Carmel Center. The old Mount Carmel Center being back in Oklahoma. There's a lot more backstory in all this. A lot of prophecies that never came to pass. A lot of fighting between various holy leaders... ...and the usual cult bullshit. But for now, you know why the Branch Davidians... ...were located outside of Waco which is all you really need to know about that. In 1978, Benjamin Roden died, and his wife, Lois, succeeded him and became the prophet of the Mount Carmel Branch Davidians. This was all cool. Lois had been right there with Benjamin during the building of the place, and the followers of the sect were down with Lois being their proxy Jesus. And waiting in the wings was the anointed heir, the son of Benjamin and Lois, George. George likes his chicken spicy. George assumed that when Mother Lois went home to be with Jesus, that he, George Roden, would be the natural leader of the Branch Davidians, and for a long while, this seemed to be the case. However, in 1981, a fresh new face showed up on the scene, and it didn't take long for George to grow concerned that maybe his position as Proxy Jesus might not be as rock-solid as he imagined. In fact, this new kid was making some pretty aggressive moves as far as George was concerned. You know, aggressive. Like the kid was fucking his mother Lois on the regular. For all, he was 21 and Lois was 65. A cougar, huh? And that young man's name was Vernon Wayne Howell. Vernon, born in Houston, Texas in 1959 to a 14-year-old mother named Bonnie Sue and a 19-year-old father named Bobby. There's a John Cougar Mellencamp song you don't hear very often. Bonnie left before Vernon was born for yet another teenage girl, one presumably he had not yet impregnated. Bonnie Sue quickly shacked up with a violent drunk and would soon do what teen mothers who shack up with violent drunks do so often, dump Vernon off with her parents and disappear for a year and a half. Too hard-working, God-fearing men. She would eventually return married to a carpenter named Roy and raise young Vernon. Vernon was about what you might expect for a child of his circumstance. He had dyslexia, which in Texas in the early 1960s meant that he was a... Retarded. That's their word, not mine. He was enrolled in special education where he was tormented by his classmates who called him Vernie and would eventually drop out before in finishing his junior year of high school. At 19, Vernon demonstrated the kind of man he was by knocking up a 15-year-old girl, which surprisingly, given that it was Texas at the time, was illegal. One step ahead of jail, Vernon found religion and fast became born again in a Southern Baptist church before switching over to his mother's faith, the Seventh-day Adventist, where he promptly fell in love with the teenage daughter of the minister, claiming that while praying on the matter, his eyes fell upon the open Bible turned to Isaiah 34:16, which read, quote, Seek ye out of the book of the Lord and read. No one of these shall fail. None shall want her mate. For my mouth, it hath commanded, and in His spirit. Unquote. So you see, the way Vernon read it is that God was too, was cool with twenty year old Vernon boning the Reverend's sixteen year old daughter. The Reverend, however, felt somewhat differently on the matter. Get the fuck out of here and kicked Vernon out of the congregation. And that's how Vernon found himself at the Mount Carmel Center and as a part of the Branch Davidians in 1981. If you have not seen a picture of Vernon Wayne Howell, who I think I can now safely reveal is David Koresh, I suggest you pause and take a look at the show pic. That cocky little fuckable bastard. It isn't hard to see why Lois would be all like, I have got to get me some of this action. And Vernon was a charismatic rascal, young, charming, eloquent. This is a clip of him delivering a sermon at the Mount Carmel Center. Uh, I couldn't verify the date, but I would say it's the late 80s or the very early 90s, judging the clothes.
2: So, John the Revelator is visited by what angel? The Holy Spirit. Spirit. The angel of? Christ. Christ. Would that angel bring a lie? No. The angel tells John in chapters 4 to come up where? Amen. Now, for a Christian who's learned, is there a God who sits on the throne? Yeah. I mean, we're not scared when we hear about God, are we? But we're scared in one respect, and that is, there's a revelation of Jesus Christ to be dealt with here. A revelation which God, God, gave. God gave to him. We don't need the revelation of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We already have that. We don't need the revelation of Jerry Fowell or Pat Robson or Oral Roberts. We don't need the revelation of men. Here's a revelation that God has already wrapped up in his right hand a book sealed with... <laughs> Mighty angel questions all of heaven.
0: If you didn't grow up in the faith like I did, you probably didn't see what Vernon is doing there, but he's working the crowd with a little call and response. He's varying his cadence of tone. He's using his voice to hold the room and his personality to keep the crowd fixed on him. In a different time and place, Vernon would be preaching in a megachurch and flying on his own private jet and have a flock of lawyers to keep his predilection for young girls out of the news. But he was Vernon, and he had some work to do before he could become David Koresh. And that work involved laying pipe in 65-year-old Lois. Now, as you can imagine, like I said, George was not at all happy about this because, you know, Vernon was like, George, you should call me dad and telling him, like,
2: I did fuck your mom.
0: And it was pretty clear to old George that Vernon was doing Lois in order so that someday he would be the leader of the band of cultists in Mount Carmel. This likely offended George more than this 20-something kid boning his mom on the regular. And it didn't take long for their conflict to come to a head when Vernon began telling the people of Mount Carmel that not only was he doing George's mom, which they all knew, but he was going to knock her up and that their child would be the chosen one. This seemed unlikely since Lois was was 65, but hey, it's prophecy, what can you do? Because yes, of course, Vernon was a prophet. I mean, you got to be a prophet if you're going to run a cult. He just wasn't a good prophet because Lois died in 1986 without giving birth to the Chosen One. And around this time, George began to make his move, not from the bullpit, but from the courtroom.
1: What you are witnessing is real. The participants are not actors. They are actual litigants with a case pending in a California municipal court. Both parties have agreed to dismiss their court cases
0: and have their dispute settled here in our forum, the People's Court. In a case that we're calling He's Not My Dad but he's doinking my mom. Quoting now from a 1993 New York Times article, quote, George Roden, now 55 years old, soon perceived Mr. Koresh as a rival for leadership, was also offended by the relationship with his mother, former cult members say. A gun aficionado himself, Mr. Roden, took to threatening Mr. Koresh. In a 1985 federal lawsuit, he accused Mr. Koresh of raping his mother, brainwashing her, and turning her against him. The year before that lawsuit, Mr. Koresh had left the Waco compound, which the cult members call Mount Carmel, with virtually all of Mr. Roden's followers. The group went to the East Texas town of Palestine, where without a base or resources, they lived for a time like hobos in wooden shacks." George was able to expel Vernon from Mount Carmel after the compound mysteriously burned down as all this was going on. Now Vernon, of course, denied having anything to do with the fire, claiming it was the Lord Himself who set those flames. You're right. God did it. So Vernon took most of the Davidians and moved to the small Texas town and plotted how to oust George. According to multiple sources, the way George was going to prove once and for all that he, George, and not Vernon, was the one and true instrument of God was to challenge Vernon to a good old-fashioned raising of the dead.
2: Would you run that by me again, please?
0: More from the Times. Quote, Mr. Roden seethed over Mr. Koresh's influence on the several dozen members of the sect who had followed him. In 1987, he challenged Mr. Koresh to a ghoulish contest. Whoever could bring back the dead deserved to be the true leader. Koresh declines the challenge. People involved in the case say Mr. Roden dug up a coffin from the cemetery in the sect's grounds. Inside was the skeleton of a woman, identified in news reports at the time as that of Anna Hughes, who died 20 years earlier. Mr. Roden put the coffin in the cult's chapel and three times tried to resurrect the woman with with prayers. Mr. Koresh did not take up the challenge. Instead, he searched for laws that Mr. Roden might be breaking. And finally, he reported to the McClendon County Sheriff's Office that Mr. Roden was engaging in corpse abuse. The authorities told him to get evidence, like a photograph. Unquote.
2: You're making this up.
0: I assure you, I am not. Because it was documented in court when the defense lawyer brought the coffin and the skeleton to court. And it remained there, I know what I'm gonna say here, it's just so fucked up that I have to say it. It remained in the courthouse rotunda while motions were argued in front of the judge on whether or not it could be admitted as evidence. Sadly, it was not George who was on trial when the body was brought in to testify. It was Vernon. Why am I not surprised? Because you see, to get the evidence to the aforementioned corpse abuse, you know, the photograph that was suggested by local police, Vernon mounted a fucking commando raid against the Mount Carmel Pond complex. Again, from the Times. Quote, the raid could have been a scene from Platoon, one of Mr. Koresh's favorites. On the morning of November 3rd, 1987, he and seven of his followers dressed in camouflage uniforms and combat boots, with charcoal smeared under, smeared under their eyes and armed with military-style rifles and shotguns, crawled into the sex property. Their objective seemed to be to retake the land Mr. Koresh had left three years earlier in a dispute with the Sex leader, although Mr. Koresh and others said they were trying to uncover evidence of illegal activity by the leader, unquote. Do you know what they did not have with them on their mission to get photographic evidence of the said corpse abuse? A camera. When the shooting was over, George was slightly wounded, and Vernon was in charge of Mount Carmel once again. The cops investigated. Vernon was charged with attempted murder and was promptly acquitted at a trial by jurors who actually hugged Vernon when the trial was over. That is how fucking charming Vernon really was. After the trial, most of which George himself spent in jail for contempt because he swore at and insulted a federal judge during motions and was brought to the courthouse in handcuffs as the victim of the crime, it was George who was in exile. And George Roden, huge prick. He was a con artist and he would catch real jail time for killing a man in 1989 after he hit him in the head with the axe because the man claimed that he was the Messiah and not George. George will be found not guilty by reason of insanity and sentenced to the mental hospital where he would escape several times. After one escape, he was found causing a ruckus at the Israeli consulate in New York City, demanding an Israeli passport because his grandparents were Jewish and the protection of the consulate because a Palestine Liberation Organization hit squad was on his tail. He escaped one final time in 1998 and was found dead of a heart attack on the hospital grounds. It's safe to say that even if Vernon had not come to power at Mount Carmel, there was a pretty good chance that what went down at Waco or if something similar would have gone down anyway. Vernon wound up with a Mount Carmel compound and most of the cult came on back and said, What the fuck? Vernon's our messiah. Firmly in control of the cult, Vernon began preaching prophecy and fucking everything that moved. You know, cult leadership. Now, as we've pointed out throughout this episode, Vernon is not a very good name for a messiah. Do you know what's an awesome fucking name for a messiah? Dave. Dave? Dave. Good, honest name. The name of a man you can trust. The name of a man you just want to buy a drink. But Vernon went with a more biblical version of this august name and chose David. David Koresh. Why the stupid name? According to Wikipedia, quote, his first name David symbolized a lineage directly to the biblical King David from whom the new Messiah would descend. Koresh is the biblical name of Cyrus the Great, a Persian king whose named Messiah for freeing the Jews during Babylonian captivity. By taking the name of David Koresh, he was professing himself to be the spiritual descendant of King David, a messianic figure, carrying out a divinely commissioned errand. unquote. Yeah, sure, whatever. And on August 28, 1990, Judge Robert Martinez of California State Superior Court in Pomona granted the petition of Vernon Wayne Howell to change his name to David Koresh for publicity and business purposes. And that is how Vernon Wayne Howell became the David Koresh now enshrined in history. Now another thing you need to know is that the people surrounding Mount Carmel liked the Branch Davidians. I mean, the Branch Davidians said all the right words when it came to religion, and if old Vernon or whatever his name was now was a little weird, well, it's America, and people could be weird as long as they keep their weirdness away from us. The Davidians paid their bills, spent money in town, and were polite and respectful. The local police got on great with the Davidians after, you know, the Davidians reclaimed Mount Vernon from Roden's followers. They actually found a meth lab on the property and turned it over to the cops, which made the cops look really good. All in all, the neighbors thought the Branch Davidians to be good, God-fearing folk who minded their own business in a small Texas town that will take you a long way if you're white enough, which surprisingly, the Branch Davidians, very white. There were a few black folks in the group, just enough so that they could say, see, we're good folks, we let them fellowship with us, and all this will be very important in events to come. Now, this being true, there were, of course, rumors. Small towns love rumors, and the rumors that began to circulate about the Branch Davidians were juicy, to say the least. Well, let's see, what rumors to start with? Well, I guess we'll start with the... Guns. Lots of guns. The Branch Davidians were, at their core, a doomsday cult. They believed that the Day of Deliverance was at hand, and they needed to be ready to defend themselves during the tribulations leading up to that day. So they had guns. They had lots of guns, and they learned how to use them. This wasn't a problem. Not in Texas. Not then. Not now. Hell, the Davinians had such a nice firing range, the low school cops used it for target practice. And I would remind you that correctionist and his followers staged a commando raid on old George that succeeded in chasing him off the property. Because the Davinians had so many guns, they began selling guns on the gun show circuit. It was a significant source of income for the group. Now, the sales were legal, but at gun shows then and now, there are the guns on the table... And there are guns back in the truck, some of which might not be so legal. Rumors floated around that the sound of fully automatic gunfire could be heard from the Mount Carmel compound, and no one on the compound held a license for weapons that could do that. But there was another rumor. rumor that David Kuretch liked girls a lot, and he liked them young. Quoting from a Waco Tribune article which predated the ATF raid, quote, Howell told the Gathering that God had commanded him to have sex with a 14-year-old girl in the cult, according to Brealt and former cult members. The girl was hardly a vamp. Former cult members Lisa Gent said that the girl was not physically developed. Her grandmother described the teenager as a simple person who speaks in a frail little girl voice. Howell told her of God's command. They were to unite and have a child called Shoshana who would marry Cyrus, Howell's son by Rachel, his legal wife. The two offspring would rule in God's kingdom. At first, Howell thought that God was testing him by telling him to give seed to the girl. He reported crying out, Mr. Rachel, my Cyrus. But when he heard God repeat his command, Howell said he obeyed, and according to Briol and other former cult members, it wasn't the first time Howell had claimed God had given him a woman, unquote. Prior rumors were investigated by the Texas authorities, but insufficient evidence was found to take any actions. Various explanations for this ran through the community before and after the rape. Most of the allegations came from former cult members, and Koresh dismissed them as disaffected, malcontents, and, and investigators who looked into the allegations noted that the current members, including the parents of the young girls in question, denied any questionable actions, but they had their doubts. What they didn't have was proof. So, nothing was done, and the rumors. Persisted. This was the situation in May of 1992 when the local sheriff had a UPS driver walk into their office with a box full of hand grenades. There are conflicting reports on whether it was hand grenades or just parts of hand grenades in a CBS News interview in 2018, which quoted the driver who made the report as calling them hand grenades. I'm sure there are a lot of people that are gonna get mad at me, like the LeVayan Satanists did, saying that my sources were shit, but that's what the UPS driver said, that's what the sheriff said, and that's what the ATF said. The driver told ATF investigators he was moving the box when it broke open and spilled the contents. He also told them that he had delivered multiple similar boxes from the same gun dealer over the past few months. In June of that same year, the ATF opened an investigation into the Branch Davidians, an investigation that would culminate in the raid of February 28, 1993, 30 years ago this week. This is the clusterfuck where we will pick up next week for part two which we are calling wake o me up before you go go that is it for our show this week i want you all to know that this was the fun part of the two-parter because it's a lot easier to make jokes about burning doinking george's mom than it will be to make jokes about women and children dying in a fire you know it will happen anyway No, no, really, it won't, I promise. I'm not going to focus on how it ended. I'm going to focus on how stupid the government was. Uh, There's way more chances for humor there. Speaking of acting in poor taste, rate and review this show so other people can find it. Take and listen and uh, find the show in very poor taste. If you want to drop a dollar in the collection plate for our eventual East Texas compound, hit us up at patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. Now! Do everything Jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits. Otherwise, he and I will be forced to settle our differences by seeing which one of us can resurrect the dead. That's just really a cute name we have for a drinking contest. And so for me, Dave, reach out, touch Faith Bledsoe, producer. No one has ever heard my prayers about getting out of this job. Gavin and all the fictional true believers on the show, we want to say that if Vernon said it, we believe it, and that settles it for us. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as whatthehellpodcast. Thanks for listening.
1: I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. You be David Koresh, and I'll be a heavy-handed FBI agent.